Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. And, oh wait, we've got one more person on the call today. We are delighted to introduce uh, to the show the sonorous tones of Scott Paladin. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? I am doing Fantastic. Especially that way I get to talk about one of my favorite sci-fi series. So um, for those of our listeners uh, who have not heard about you on the internet, who are you? Um, I do lots of stuff. Um, If you're in the podcasting space, then the three projects you may be aware of are first Monster Mechanics, where me and a co-host talk about like creatures and of myth and media, like xenomorphs and mermaids and stuff, and try to rehash those. And then solo, I do uh, a show called Cowboy Classics with Scott Paladin because I happen to be in pretty good I have to be in possession of a pretty good cowboy voice and so I read the uh, public domain literature as a cowboy which is fun and then the final one if you are into Babylon 5 you might enjoy Breathing Space Fading Frontiers which is an anthology audio drama podcast that is as of recording going to release in a couple of months but will have been out for a couple of months by the time this thing is actually aired I think as a listener of Monster Mechanics podcast I will say that it is some of my favorite world-building stuff that you can find on the internet because Scott and uh, his co-host make like entire like you make entire like ecologies surrounding these monsters, yeah, or or like take entirely like wild takes on stuff. Your ring rates episode is one of my favorites. Oh, man, the thing is, we do it often enough. I actually can't remember what we did for ring rates. Um, <laughs> Was that the future selves one? No, that was that's um, that's that the was, weeping that's sleeping angels. That one's good too. Oh, was Ringwraiths the one where we went through the other? We like did the Ringwraiths for elves and um, dwarves as well. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, okay, that was a good one. The weeping angels one, I I love, and it was the most infuriating thing I've ever listened to because it was so good, but I could not find any way to ever do an RPG adventure related to it because of the way you made it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, man. That's just the way the crooked grumbles sometimes. Yeah. No. <laughs> How did you get into Babylon five? Uh, where, when did you first get into it? I watched it on release. I maybe not. I don't know if I was watching it live or in reruns, uh, but it was definitely during the time when it was airing. It, uh, I remember distinctly sneaking out of my bedroom to go to the living room of our house where I would turn on the TV real low and watch uh, Babylon five as it was, you know, as it was airing fresh. Uh, and it was, it blew my mind. Cause at that time TV did not have like serialized, like uh, ongoing stories. Like everything was episodic, including things like star Trek at the time. And so having a thing that carried over week to week was just like the best thing that I could think of at the time. I know so many people who say that exact same thing that the long form storytelling had such an enormous impression on people at the time. I don't think anybody really had done that, that just the audacity of it to, to try and tell a five year long story on network television 
and such an ambitious story, I think. Yeah, and especially in that space. I mean, like, there were ongoing storylines and things like um, you know, soap operas and stuff. But, like, in the sci-fi world of, like, telling this huge, grandiose space opera story, I, I don't I can't think of anybody else that did that. No. I think that's one of the things that makes the show hold up so well as yeah. well. Now that we're used to that kind of, like, long-form storytelling, it's um, it feels really natural to watch B5 and have and see that, even though it was mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, yeah. If you look at, like, the way television went over the next 20, 30 years, like, that, that's the – it made a formula that everybody else ended up following because it worked for premier television for things like HBO and stuff. And yeah. And they're all, they're all following the, the Babylon 5 model of planning it out ahead of time. Yeah. That narrative style is, is still extremely modern. The graphics uh, aren't too bad on HBO, uh, and the sets may – May look a little a little funny uh, at this point. Uh, looking at you, Nakaline Theater. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Especially but, the first season. You know what really dates it is the makeup, not the creature effects. The like when they put when they give women like incredibly hard lip liner. Like in that first season, it was just a particular style that does not translate well or, to modern eyes. Or the ag- like the aggressive pads or or the Zima. Uh, or or my personal favorite franklin's fuck suit where he's got the uh the the 90s like uh nylon like uh uh, what do you call it nylon track suit uh or as we call it franklin's fuck suit where he that he puts on because he thinks he's going to a sex party yeah there are definitely things where you're like whoof 90s uh but yeah but as you say there there are definitely things you can look at it and you're like, woo, they bought that in the science store at the mall. But the story is not one of them. Yeah. The story feels like they could take the shooting script for any one of these, every episode in this show and reshoot it scene for scene. Yeah. With the everything identical and just do it with better sets and better costumes and better graphics. And the show would be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it would nothing would it would it would be perfectly fine. Like nothing about it would feel out of date or weird. Yeah, except for some of the politics. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Gar- I don't think Garibaldi has aged particularly well. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> that, I mean, and basically what you're saying about taking the the concept and just moving it forward—that's what Mass Effect did, and it is hugely popular. <laughs> yeah, ironically, I think that's why Garibaldi. Like, I, I agree with you and disagree at the same time, in the sense that I think Garibaldi doesn't work and for that exact reason i think he would work like i think you would all you would need to do is take like one step away from making him sympathetic yeah then it would work and it would be fine like if you made him like yeah. the overtly sim- the overt symbol of toxic masculinity rather than the symbol of toxic masculinity that is pretending to be a protagonist yeah and yeah. he would be a, a perfectly like he would fit just fine yeah like if you if you put him solidly in the Londo zone, where yeah. like Nailed you it. enjoy yeah. the character on screen, but you fucking hate him. Yeah, exactly. If you make him a Londo, he fits it, it, everything. Yeah, totally fine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Once Couldn't the narrative stops treating him as somebody who you are identifying with, and instead treat him as a problem that needs to be overcome by the rest of the characters, then he he makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. Mass Effect did the the smart thing and changed Garibaldi into sexy bird Batman. <laughs> I've never played Mass Effect, but that's a compelling sell. Uh, sexy so bird from, Batman. Wow. 
you've got two and a half months before the the remaster comes out. You're you would love it. Um, it's going to be out for a few months by the time this episode hits, and I will probably not shut up about it around March. Um, so if you want to go back on my Twitter timeline while I'm replaying that game, uh, folks at home. The only thing I recommend is wait long enough for them to do an all genders romance mod, because uh, having that freedom yeah. is hugely improve, hugely improves it to me, because there is no reason to ever play male Shep. You need to always play female Shep. She's always better. Yes, always. Yeah. Uh, Noted. And and then always romance Garrus. Tolly. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Mass Effect 2 lets me let's me romance both Liara and Garrus in the game. So it, it's got my it's got my canon polycule. There are no wrong answers except for that one dude whose name I can't remember because he's so forgettable <laughs> from Mass Effect 2. Um Oh Jacob. Yes. <laughs> he's yeah, the only wrong ja- answer. Jacob's the wrong answer. <laughs> uh Welcome to our podcast, uh, Mass Effect Romance Hot Takes. This is why we're only doing one episode of Separated Night, uh, which is going to be uh, Season 3, Episode 14. We are on our pie episode of the series, um, which is Ship of Tears. Uh, this is written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Mike Vehar. Good old Mike Vehar. He's like, he's a rock. He's directed like 20 episodes of the series so far. All right. We start with the crew excited for ISN's return. However, once it's back online, it's clear that it's just a propaganda channel now. Meanwhile, Sheridan is getting checked out on the new Thunderbolt Star Fury, which, okay, okay, I promise we will talk about new planes at after the summary. We're just going to get through this. Um, but Sheridan gets an Earth distress call. The damaged ship has an unexpected pilot, Bester. Sheridan recognizes the insignia on the craft, Black a Black Omega, which is an elite unit attached to Psycor. Sheridan remarks that Babylon 5 is independent of Earth and is not adhered to, Psy- to the Psycor, so fuck you, Bester, and that he should just blow Bester out of the sky. Uh, Bester decides to play on Sheridan's curiosity, and Sheridan lets him in. I love that he basically knows Sheridan well enough to, to like, say, I've got a conspiracy. And Sheridan's like, ah, fuck you, Yahtzee. <laughs> like, just knows exactly how to, how to, how to hook Sheridan. Yeah. Just, just dangles. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna blow you up. And Bester's like, but I have a secret. Would yeah. you like to know my secret? Sheridan just... Yeah. If you kill me, you can't know it. Yeah, it's like it's like McFly and Chicken. Like he's just he's just too dumb to like be able. He just can't say no to it. It's like it's like when I take a slice of deli ham and dangle it in front of the cat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Back on the station, Jakar is getting rightfully impatient with the staff. While the Narn have been important to Babylon 5's defense, Sheridan has not held up his end of the bargain of bringing Jakar on the new alliance. Bester, once he lands, is escorted onto the station by a team of security officers. In Sheridan's office, uh, the command staff discusses Bester and the possibility of drugging him again with the anti-side drugs, but Bester says he needs those to help them. They decide to send Ivanova in first to see if he will scan her, and testing that out is a good faith measure. Ivanova goes in to question Bester, and he doesn't uh, try to probe her, and instead he makes some cracks about her mom. She slaps him, and then Bester proceeds with what he was actually here for. He says that Clark is not calling the shots at home, but some aliens are. He only knows what they are called shadows. 
Bester states that these aliens are interrupting his plans for his telepath supremacist future, and he wants to go hurt the shadows. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we we jump ahead into Sheridan's quarters, where they are talking about their new war council, and Delenn telling uh, Sheridan that Jakar knows what's going on and whether they should bring him in. They don't know how to talk to Jakar about the things they knowingly covered up in the name of secrecy, dooming his planet to conquering. The next day, Bester briefs the staff on his plan. There is a convoy of ships riding through hyperspace that are carrying weapons materials for the shadows. You gotta air quotes that. Weapons materials. <laughs> yeah, um, Bester will help the crew find the ship in hyperspace and they will be able to seize the vessel. The White Star heads out with Bester in tow, including a funny bit of Walter Koenig finally getting to sit in a captain's chair when Bester detects the shadow vessels. And getting rightfully <laughs> called out for it, too, which is great. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's that's the point where I'm like, is Bester just a cat? <laughs> he really is. He's an asshole enough to be one. Because like, Sheridan turns around and is just like, why are, why are you in my chair? And he's just like, smug. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Jakar visits Delenn in her quarters and she drops the truth on him. That they kept the secret of the shadows and by doing that allowed the Centauri to win the war. Jakar had guessed at most of this, but he has learned now that Delenn knew. He remarks on the quote that some must be sacrificed for all of us to be saved. And he knows that it isn't as much about how they got there as where they are going. Delenn asks if he could ever forgive her. And Jakar responds, maybe, but not today. The White Star is able to quickly dispatch the escorts and trap the cargo vessel. They pick up a shadow vessel, but it disengages and retreats. They take the cargo ship back and find that the pilot of the vessel seems to have killed himself through acid of some sort. They are able to get into the cargo hold and find inside a large number of cryopods. They are in fact telepaths, a number of them members of Psychor. Sheridan grills Bester about why people might describe telepaths as weapon systems. But in MedLab, Franklin observes one of the people in the cryopod who she wakes up mid-examination. And we promise this actually isn't Franklin's fault. Is it, though? Mm, You're giving Franklin a lot of credit there. There's no evidence to suggest that this is not Franklin's fault. (laughs) All you have going on there is it doesn't show him fucking it up. But it also doesn't show him taking any kind of extra precautions for it. All the evidence on this show is clear that Franklin is, at best, incompetent, if not outright, outright neglectful and abusive. So I think the the assumption we have to make here is that he, like, was too stoned to remember to, to give her the, the next dose of, of, med, of meds to keep her under. Listeners, I, I try to keep Jude in check for the, for the guests, but... Like like a, like a happy dog, he just makes a mess of the floor. <laughs> they show Bester the woman's ID bracelet, and he explains that the woman was a blip, someone who ran from the Psychor rather than taking the drugs or joining. After another moment, he recognizes something in the bracelet and demands to see the woman. The woman is dreaming in MedLab, and she has a nightmare of aliens and wakes up screaming. Franklin, Bester, and Sheridan head into MedLab, where the lights are off. Inside, they find the woman, tangled in a mess of wires and cables. Franklin tries to communicate, but the woman talks to Bester, calling him Alfred and begging for him to help. However, she has a reaction to his Psychor badge and tries to palpatine him. In an experimentation, they toss his badge on the ground and she zaps it. She says that the sign hurts, quote-unquote, us, 
and she cannot hear the machine, which she is joined to. Bester scans her and sees a shadow vessel with a person inside. Later in Sheridan's office, they question Bester, and Bester reveals that the woman is his lover and the mother of his child. He has a wife and child as part of a genetic pairing, but Carolyn, this woman, was a blip who he fell for. Sheridan, Ivanova, and Bester are able to deduce that these telepaths were to be delivered to the shadows as pilots slash living computers for their vessels. Bester pleads for them to save Carolyn and says that their war is now his war. Bester leaves the station, but Ivanova expresses her dubious belief in his allegiance. Delenn takes Jakar to the new war room where, hey, it's a new set, complete with an upgrade to the California pizza kitchen table. Yeah, we we no longer have the brunch table. It's now like a round table. Which seems very appropriate um, right after late delivery from Avalon. Garibaldi, meanwhile back in his quarters, is reading the Book of Jaquan and finds that the shadows killed all the psychics on the Narn homeworld. The shadows are, in fact, afraid of telepaths, and telepaths can disrupt their systems on their vessels. However, as Garibaldi is showing this to the new war council, a report comes in. The shadows have made their move. They're on the war path in Burkiri space. Bum bum bum. There are so many this is a great episode. Uh there's there's a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff in here. One moment I always like from this episode uh is at the end when Garibaldi, who I I have to say is not a person I wouldn't trust with my copy of the Book of Jaquan, uh, is very excitedly do like not. pointing out his thing. Do not thump the Book of Jaquan. <laughs> it's just so just, such a oh, nice and, little and moment. When Jacquard does his headache face. Too. Yeah, he just he's like, like oof. He's like physically harmed by the sight of of Garibaldi thwacking the book with his meaty tyrannical finger. Uh, but there's so much to like about this episode. This is yeah. one of those episodes where there's no, there really isn't like slow stuff going on. It, no, it's packed. It's a real tight episode. Moves real quick. I like that. Well, and like Jakar gets some great lines. Like the whole thing about you know my patience is infinite, and then he's like, I want, but I want to join the council now. And uh, Ivanova is like, Well, I thought your patient was infinite. And he's like, Well, yeah, space and time are infinite, and but are also curved, and so therefore curved back onto themselves, and so have I. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Such a line. good line. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a really good Jakar line. I want to say that like probably my favorite bit of that is when they're out in space and like Bester lays out like, oh hey, I want to help you guys. I'm here I'm here to help you. And there's a long pause, and Bester, like with a little bit of nervousness, says, Captain. And yeah, he, Sharon just says he presents the option. I think it would be you'll find that I am much more useful than the amount of pleasure you would get from blowing me up. And then there's a long <laughs> pause. <what> and then <laughs> he's like, Captain, and he's like, uh, I'm thinking it over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bester has, like, acknowledges in this episode that everyone wants to kill him. And he's very, like, upfront about, like, he walks into the situation knowing that he has something to offer that's more valuable than how much everybody wants him dead. Yeah. And you can tell he loves being in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real like I don't know. Is it is big dick energy like a thing we're allowed to still say, to say anymore? Because like, is it big telepath energy? I don't know. Whatever it is, like big teep energy. Yeah, big teep energy. He's got God. it in spades this episode because like it's the only thing that gets him through this alive. Yeah, and especially since he, it's like, well, I'm more useful than the amount that they want me dead. So 
I'm going to fuck with them constantly. Yeah. Yeah. You could you could argue that he's actually doing that to keep them on like if they're thinking emotionally and reacting angrily to him, then they're not going to be trying to outthink his actual plan. That was yeah. kind of how I was reading, yeah. it. especially when he gets Ivanova to slap him. He's obviously provoking her. And I remember there was a line somewhere where uh, if you are ang- if you have strong emotions, your heart, you- your defenses go down and like things yeah. will come to the surface. And so he's like mm-hmm. obviously playing Ivanova so that he can he can get a scan in on her, although I don't know if he actually does or not. But he definitely is doing that sort of like yeah. manipulation. Yeah. It seems like it's almost like a natural thing he does. We see this. It, it's not as present in the first couple seasons because he's there under the veneer of professionalism. But it, when we see him earlier in the season when he doesn't have his powers because of the, the telepath drugs. And in this one, it's much more present where yeah. it's clear he's just manipulating people and it's almost like that's his default state yeah when he's not pretending to be a good little psychop his default state is basically troll yeah (laughs) yeah i also really like the scene with jakar and delen oh yeah uh a heartbreaking scene those two are to me like the best from a like raw charisma standpoint those two deliver the hardest in the show. And anytime you have the two of them in a scene together, you know, you're going to, you're, you're going to get walloped. Yeah. Yeah. And season three, Jakar is to me, that's his peak of his character arc. I mean, like he can, he goes on there from there and there's more development, but like, that's when I am enjoying him the most is when he's in that, in that, in, in the middle of this arc. And that's almost the Zenith to me for, is that moment with, with Delenn in that, in this one episode. He has, Excellent moments in this episode. Yeah. yeah. He has that moment with the visions with of his father slash Kosh, uh, where he's like told that like you have to be willing to put your people to the blade for the good of everyone. And he has this religious moment. He's like, yes, of course I get it. And now he's sitting in front of Delenn and he's being forced to like accept that. And you can see how much it hurts him to have to, 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 he he has to live the religious truth that he yeah. he has been thinking about and, and espousing. And it makes you it makes you also think about like the degree to which Kosh is manipulating him. Yeah, yeah. Like it's such a good arc for him, but Kosh, it's like, super gross. Yeah, right, right. Because like Kosh is like Kosh has got to know that this exact conversation is coming, right? Yeah. So being like, oh, well, you have to be willing to sacrifice your people, Jakar, like you already have. We're past yeah. uh, waiting and get Gethsem- waiting and get Semini, the one with. Yeah. 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 Okay. Passing through Gethsemane. So I wonder if it was a deliberate choice to call that ahead where because essentially what happened is he he got his Gethsemane, Gethsemane moment. Jakar did where yeah. he mm-hmm. knew that this was a thing that he would have to that he would have to. um a value he would have to live up to at some point. And then this is the moment when that comes. And so a couple of episodes ago, the writers point this out and say, Hey, this sort of telegraphing what's going to come, which is, Oh, that's good. If that was intentional, that, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Guess somebody is such a good episode on its own too. On any oh, yeah. other show, I would say that's coincidental, but JMS, JMS is one of those writers where you kind of have to, I'm willing to give him credit for that one. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I dunk on JMS for a lot of stuff, but he, he's the kind of writer that legitimately would <laughs> yeah. seed that like that so that you have that in mind. Uh, so I, I could definitely see that. 
I think somebody, I can't, we were talking about the Vorlon being gross, and I'm going to use that to segue into the other grossest thing in this episode. <laughs> uh, speaking of manipulative and uh, gross uh, power inequalities, uh, I want to talk about Bester. Jesus uh, God, that's so gross. Yeah, it's even his, disgusting. Even yeah. his humanizing moment, the thing that's supposed to make us sort of like see into Bester, it's like he's still being disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, no, like, it's, it's like it's like he thinks that he's going to tell the story and everybody's going to be like, "Oh, poor poor Bester, he's his his girlfriend is turned into a shadow ship." Oh no! And it's, and it's, like, it's like, no, Bester, you're you're an absolute disgusting slime ball. Like what it is is he had sex with a prisoner. That's really what it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you abused a tyrannical power structure. To have your way with a woman who could not say no f- for fear of dying. And, and, and you, you know, I'm glad that you felt an emotion there. Not glad. I'm sure you felt an emotion there, <laughs> such as you are capable of feeling them, you space goblin. But whatever emotions she felt, I don't know. He's a telepath. Maybe he could tell if she was having a real emotion or not. But she was supposedly very strong. So who's to say what real emotion she was having? I don't know. And also, who's to say that he would interpret it correctly either? I mean, he'd probably just interpret it through the haze of his own ego. Yeah. yeah. I do think this is, like, this is a, this is one of those things where once is an anomaly, two is a coincidence, and three is a pattern when it comes to psychor and romantic relationships yeah. that we've seen, where, like, we've seen it twice, like, there were two instances of it with, Talia and some other references to it, but this is like the third time we have like a named character reference, like a romantic liaison that is specifically involves a power imbalance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All three of those instances, the two Italian, and this one, the best are all are men in higher positions yep. who are getting relationships out of women who are not in positions to say no. And I'm not sure, like, that's something that I'm not sure how intentional that is, but it's definitely a pattern. And, I mean, you can point to other sort of subcultures where this is a, this can become a prominent thing, like, say, maybe, like, academia. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've talked with the Dearest Slattery about how telepathy can be viewed as a analog for queerness in this and that is something especially in an abusive power structure like psychor could you know could also manifest there yeah i like the parallel you have there with academia because that's super a thing in academia (laughs) um and it's a thing in academia that makes me very uncomfortable but it's this um like emotionally intense insular environment. So even without the kind of structural things with Psychor of like, you want telepaths to breed with other tel- telepaths to make more better telepaths. Like even without that, you know, the, the, the parallel with academia where you've got people like working very closely with one another, it's, I, I could see how it could kind of like turn incestuous in the same way that academia really really is it's also a feature of because there's some similarities between um uh the psychor and how it treats telepaths and like 
the way cults form, where it's about like removing people from their support mechanisms and, and tying them into a different community that is fully controlled and highly structured. And exploiting those kinds of power imbalances is what cults are all about. And so seeing that arise in something that has those same sort of features also makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You had another point you wanted to raise about Bester, I believe, Justin, that was designed <laughs> to insult me. So I'm going off a particular lie. Uh, or when, when Bester is talking to Suzanne, one could think that if you filed off some serial numbers and re- did a, like a find replace there, I'm just going to say that Bester kind of sounds like Magneto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I noticed the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to go hide it, the desk now. As soon as you said it, I, my, my initial reaction was, fuck you. That's really right. Because, uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, Bester's, from the start, Bester's avowed goals are the supremacy of telepaths. And for the most part, I mean, we don't want to, I mean, we kind of do, but uh, the X-Men podcast space is crowded and uh, does not need uh, anyone else in it. The The number of excellent X-Men podcasts out there where there's, I have nothing to add, but Magneto for the most part is, is that's his thing. Like, he is the mutant supremacy guy. Uh, and I get that that's... So So the parallel is really direct there. And... I, I, I'm also, like, referencing this much more in, I would say, Magneto's lesser nuanced depictions. Yeah. Like, like the, yeah. This, is, this is very Silver Age Magneto. And, yeah. like, when they're going, like, they're going to sell him hard as a villain. Claremont like, pink pajama ma- Magneto. Now this is like that at least has sympathy. That, that, that like that has nuance. Like this is like just like the end goals of both. Yeah. For like Bester and that. It, that's like that's like really hard villain Magneto. Yeah. Because I'm sympathetic, <laughs> but like I like I just mostly put that there to 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 get a rise out of you. <laughs> but you're right. No, though. but you're right though. Like yeah, that 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 thing he has that I'm willing to commit atrocities in the name of preserving and f- furthering the survival of my people is the central drive of Magneto. It always has been. They have deepened his character substantially over the years, but fundamentally that's who he is. And that's what, that's who Bester is too. I mean, he's also, you know, apparently, uh, you know, sex criminal and, uh, other things. Okay, keep your dirty <laughs> gestures to yourself, Zathras. Um, but yeah, uh, wow, that does put his jerk-off gesture into a weird new context. Gross. But yeah, he's, I mean, that's who he is. And uh, I think it's a. I think it's a very interesting point to sort of recontextualize him. The only problem i have with that context for bester is magneto would never become a cop yeah yeah he would never like he would never bust up the underground railroad yeah because his thing is he would not be down with like forced mutant breeding programs 
I like this is this is like yeah the, the metaphor the, me- the 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 link falls apart upon like close examination. Yeah, well, specifically along the axis of like Magneto would never be a fascist, and Bester is like one hundred percent a fascist. So like, oh, yeah. once yeah. you flip that switch, there's just stuff that follows on from there that they they have to diverge yeah. on. They they agree on ideology, not on methodology. Yeah, they they agree on their endpoint, but like I, I mean, Bester is an integrationist. He believes that like. He, because of the power structure he was raised in, that the way that he can attain his end goals is by working inside of the system and achieving power that way through the, like the gradual mm. propagation of telepaths, and the, and then they just will rise to the top. Which I feel like there's a maybe it's in the last two seasons, who knows? Um, but I feel like there's a good conspiracy show waiting of like. What happens to, <laughs> to to Cycor and all the shit? And you know, I we've got I've got we've got two seasons and change to go here. So, and I I genuinely do not remember what happens with Cycor. So, uh, that'll be that'll be interesting for all of us. Yeah, I I love I how like everybody just forgot in season five. So we're all gonna have fun with that. <laughs> I know it exists, and I have like I know like the one like the half sentence summary of like what it's about. Like season one is like about this and season two is this and season three is this and season four is this and season five is this. I know that. That's it. And I remember the production problems that led to season five being the way it was. Cause yeah, I know that yeah. story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, but yeah. UPN and, and so forth yeah. dicking around with poor JMS there. Well, no, it's, they didn't just dick around. They, they've collapsed. <laughs> yeah. they, they fell apart and they didn't yeah. think they were going to be able to afford it. And another network picked it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, you got, you got four seasons better wrap up. Oh wait, no, Psych. you got, you got season five. With yeah. that knowledge, season four makes a lot more sense. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I, I do want to point out like a production thing here, which is that when you, uh, when they're show when 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 they're flipping through the book of Jaquan, it the in like the last scene, we get to see the inside cover of it, which is like this funky like volcanic rock texture, and I'm like I don't know what they did to get that, but I like it. Yeah, I think yeah. So I have an interesting very thought pretty. about that. It's a good it's a good prop. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a great prop. Yeah, it's interesting to me the degree to which Narn, the occupation has so thoroughly warped Narn culture and the Narn, like, I want to say psyche, but like their aesthetic and like their, their visual sense of self. They were an agrarian world before Centauri showed up. Even they, they had yeah. that red sun, but they were a, a planet of things that grew and farmers. And then the Narn showed up. And now you look at Jakar's quarters and you look at the places they live and the things they make and everything they make is stone. All that is the aesthetic that they, that they are centered on is stone and uh, tunnels and rock. And they are a people for whom living on in caverns and hideouts and desolation is like the central motif of their civilization. And that's fucking wild to me and is a great 
sort of subtle note to tell you about how fucked they got by the Centauri. That it derailed whatever culture they had. They were so thoroughly colonized by the Centauri that whatever they were before the Centauri came is gone. And now they have this new thing. This new thing that they are now. And and the thing that's extra fucked up is that it only took, what, about a hundred years, right? Yeah. 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 And God knows what they'll be after the, after the bombing and after yeah. the Shadow War and like everything yeah. else that's going on. Uh, who knows what how how long it will take for them to find a new sense of self directed identity after yeah. this? Well, they've got they've got Jakar to lead them at least. That's true. Yeah, they do. Well, and since we're talking about the Book of Jaquan and uh, production notes, uh, did anybody else notice uh, Garibaldi's adorable '90s palm top uh, Narn to human translation diff terminal? Oh yeah, yeah, I love, I love that. that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that feels like a very like. We are transposing a 90s technology because like I know I've seen those for like Spanish and French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in fact, I I should have gone back and look. I couldn't remember if it was an actual prop that they pulled from a from an electronic store or if it was a um, something they made. But that was definitely 1992's version of the future <laughs> was you'd have yeah. a little yeah. a little shape like a laptop with a hinge and a little keyboard. So cute. I love it. Yeah, I, 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 I we've talked about this like it's like in spare uh, moments before, but I, I do find it interesting that like V5 in particular, like compared to like Star Trek, which projects for we'll say projects forward and has a sort of design Bible that it goes through of like, this is what we think the 24th century looks like. And I, I was specifically referring to like the next generation DS9 Voyager era. And like every race has their own variants on that. But for Babylon 5, it is just the technology, like the like the computers are going to look like they did in 1995, and they're going to look <laughs> like an ATM. I've got $17 yeah. in the bu production budget this episode. What can I get at the CVS down the street or at the science store at the mall to dress the set this this episode? Little Little gel... Little little flippy over gel things for the for the med lab set, sold. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the CRT from your basement. Yeah, right. What what props did they already have at the studio that we could just grab yeah. real quick? Yeah, God. They, that, I mean, they that really would do. that would explain the Centauri eye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Who's got Who's got a bedazzler? I got twenty minutes. Who's got a bedazzler? <laughs> I got a hot glue gun and some uh, eyeball rolly thingies. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. My favorites always, though, are the science store, store spottings. Like, that yeah. was one of my favorite stores when I was in, like, junior high. And every time I see something that I distinctly remember seeing there, I, I get, like, a good chuckle when I see, like... You were probably too... Were you old? Do you remember these stores? When I, when I mentioned yeah. this, do you remember what I'm talking yeah, yeah. about, Justin? I absolutely remember the science stores. I, I'm slightly aware of them. I don't think we had any... At, I, or, like, I think by the time, like, I was older i think like they had mostly gone out of valley fair and oak ridge so, so like i mm. i have like a i have like a subconscious level of memory of this about this mm -hmm. but you but i'm also like tainted by the fact that like i went to the tech museum and the children's discovery museum a lot as a kid yeah so like, you um, know what i'm talking stuff. about then yeah. yeah 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 it's like a museum yeah. gift store turned into like a mall 
a mall, a mall retail outlet where you can buy yeah. astronaut ice cream and uh, things that you can punch dinosaur skeletons out of out of balsa wood and then assemble oh, them yeah. crab style. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you ever had a need for like 400 of those like weird water things that looked disturbingly <laughs> sexual. Oh god. Uh, oh. <laughs> I had erased that from my mind. Why did you bring it back up? Yeah, or those weird gel things, like nine million shapes with gel in them that you could flip over, or or the or the the thermometer where the the things float in it. Aaron, I want you to go through our our backlog and figure out how many times we've mentioned this on the show. <laughs> Zathras, don't you dare! Well, speaking of weird sex stuff, do we want to talk Centaurian anatomy? <laughs> um, we will get to that in a very quick second. Um, <laughs> let, let's see. Because um, I want to at least finish the episode before yeah, no, we no, get no. into bits. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a very good Cask of Amontillado reference in this, <laughs> yes. in this episode. I also had that tag. Is, so happy. Uh, Bester, like, holding up his hands and, like... Like doing the beating fists gesture. For the love of God, Montresor. I, I contend if it had been anyone lesser than Walter Koenig, that line would have fell perfectly flat. He completely sold it. Yeah. Yeah. This show's ability to land actors so, so far out of its like range <laughs> yeah. is unbelievable. We talked we, we did uh, a late delivery from Avalon. And they had, uh-oh. Uh, Michael York. Yeah, Michael York on, who is way too good for Babylon 5. Um, although he also would I don't go know. on. He was doing Austin Powers three years later. So. Yeah, I was, well, I was just going to say, he, he also would end up doing Austin Powers and then a long, season-long stint on Gilmore Girls. So, you know, plus he's British, so they'll do anything. But still, uh, definitely too good for Babylon 5. I mean, he's incredibly talented, and he's yeah. so good in that episode. And you, like, there's just so many actors, so many actors on this guest on this show, where you're just like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" And we we just had Majel Barrett too. Yeah, yeah. Majel yeah. Barrett, was amazing. And David Warner in first season, and like, oh my, like, yeah, it's okay, just everywhere. But I don't think I don't think this has come up yet. Uh, I'm I I hope it hasn't, so that I can blow Justin's mind for you in one of the movies. Not in one of the episodes, but in one of the movies, Martin Goddamn Sheen plays a my, a soul hunter. I fucking quit this podcast. <laughs> I swear to God, Martin Sheen is a soul hunter. Google it right now so you can see the 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 makeup they put him in. It's fucking buck wild. And I will tell you this. <laughs> oh my god! I will tell you this about the movie. <laughs> I I went back and watched. A clip of it to remind myself of this oh. and i am not at all sure he knows what he's doing <laughs> I w- yeah no um hold on ian mcsheen is also in this movie oh jesus oh. yeah so you've got that to look forward to okay. but yeah this show routinely man, i'm going for him now this Fuck. show routinely lands actors way outside of its pay grade and most of the time they fucking deliver Incredible performances. Uh, I'm not. I I love Martin Sheen. I adore yeah. Martin Sheen. Yeah, that's not one of them. Uh, yeah. Bless his heart. Uh, I don't think he has any fucking clue what show he's on or what he's supposed to be doing there. I mean, if I was told to get into that makeup, and I was not me, 
but instead just like an actor getting a paycheck, I'd say, I don't know, whatever, what do you want me to say? Just, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to understand it if you're putting yeah. me in that. But yeah, uh, generally speaking, this show's ability to land actors up to and including Martin goddamn Sheen, President Bartlett himself, uh, is completely inexplicable to me. I, their casting director <laughs> must, yeah. I hope that their casting director got paid fucking well. Because they, yeah. they really did a good job. I'm pretty sure that from what, like, JMS has said in his speaks things, it's pretty much because they just ask. Like, they they just will, like, we will see who's available in a week, ping them. If they say yes, they're willing to do this all for them. Um, like, it was basically their, their, their casting director was working under the well-known and well- and uh, ancient philosophy of shoot your fucking shot. <laughs> well, yeah. it worked, man. Cause God damn, like, yeah, you would not have expected a show this buck wild for its time <laughs> to be able to land the people that it did. God bless them. Yeah. Although it is an opportunity for some of those people to kind of let loose and do, kind of do whatever they want a little bit. Yeah. 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 To get out of the, the, um, the, grind of doing you know serious mundane grounded stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's go from apocalypse now to uh being, <laughs> being in <Soul> weird <laughs> yeah so i have one thing from the episode that i would love to talk about a little bit which is the scene at the start where isn comes back online yeah that's that's a really good scene both in terms of like how chilling it is to see ISN, which was already like kind of propaganda y, just go full throttle. Yeah. Yeah. Also, a, a good scene for another a great line, which was Susan Ivanova saying, uh, Sometimes I think I'm too pessimistic, and then something like this happens. To which I'm like, No, you yeah. never you never think that, Susan. <laughs> That's why we love you. You, you are yeah. always going to be as pessimistic as possible. And then it's also a great opportunity for Franklin to be just like completely out of it. Dumb as fucking possible. Where he's like, Oh man, ISN's coming back online. This is great. This means that everything on Earth is getting better. <laughs> Okay, it's I'll like, tell you what that means. Buddy. I'll tell you what that means. Franklin's high. <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. Nobody's... Uh, how... Who's that dumb? <laughs> I thought you were doing a bit here that I remember the actual character arc. Yeah. The- yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm legitimately suggesting... I mean, I do hate Franklin, and I would suggest that he would be, like, that dumb normally, but I'm legitimately suggesting that... His enthusiasm and <laughs> blind optimism in that moment is both uncharacteristic for him and indicative of someone who is, uh, in my brother's words, higher than a giraffe's ball sack. Um, <laughs> so I, I am reasonably confident that whether they were intending it or not, that is how the character comes off in that moment. Yeah. Well, and it and it ties in well with that scene from I forget which episode it is in the like leaving Earth arc, but where you know Sheridan reads out the martial law order and Franklin like stops by and is like, "Hey, you know, this is this is all just gonna just is all just gonna pass, and you're just we just gotta weather it." And you can see that that's the moment where Sheridan's like, "Well." If Franklin thinks that, it's wrong. 
(laughs) (laughs) And this is just the perfect mirror of that specific moment. Yep. I hate Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I want to do a quick check here. Is there anything specific to this episode that we want to cover before we get into our bits, our guest bits? We're going to talk about planes, right? Yeah, that's That's, the first of the guest bits. Okay, (laughs) okay. The series of Scott's hot takes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Anything we want to cover on like the content of the episode before we punch out here? Never Did you want to talk about Jaquan being a telepath? You have a note about that. Oh, yeah, ooh, yeah, yeah, ooh, yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, let's. Um, yeah, so the way that this is something that I caught this time, but never caught before. It's the way that Garibaldi phrases the like reading out the story from the book of Jaquan made me think that maybe Jaquan himself was indeed a telepath because it was something like, you know, um, Jaquan and the other remaining telepaths, or something, it's a mm-hmm. phrasing similar to that, and it's like, oh wait, yeah, um, that, yeah. I, I, after you said it, I went back and watched that scene. After you made the note, I went back and watched the scene, and I, I don't know if it's intended to be read that way, but I like that interpretation. Yeah, that'd be yeah. Cool. Um, because I think it's it's a really interesting. It, we've talked a lot about the way that telepathy uh, ma- it manifests really differently in the different races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like the idea that like the dr- I think they're called dreamwalkers. Yes, in, in the, mindwalkers. Or mindwalkers. Mindwalkers. In for the Narn, um, and I like the idea that that's where that 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 Jaquan would be one of them. That seems really appropriate because they they do seem to have a a different role in Narn society than they do in others. And it would seem to fit for me. And Mindwalkers is such a evocative piece of language too, that to me, it, it always feels much more like, you know, somebody who does their walking with their mind rather than somebody who's walking in other people's minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, That that's kind of the vibe I always get of like the, which kind of melds in nicely with the kind of wise man or wise person trope. Yeah. It's yeah. a really interesting interpretation and I like it. It, it. it raises some interesting questions about Jaquan and his legacy and his role in, in throwing the shadows off of Narn. So I, yeah, it always, it always makes me think of like Ivanova, you know, walking the path while hooked up to the great machine or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I like that. All right. All right. Have at it. <laughs> All right. So I have received flack on the show before uh, for, I will say, my guarded reception of the original uh, Roar Star Fury. Ooh, guarded reception. See, I don't think I've actually heard too much of this uh, this yet. So this is. Um, I, I think I, I think in like the first episode I called trash. Oh, um, oh yeah, no that 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 rings true. I remember that now. Yeah, okay. uh, but here, but um, we get the first uh, appearance of it in Severed Dreams yes. um, on Mars. But this is the the first close up uh, shot of I, I've looked it up the SA thirty two A. Mitchell Hyundai Star Fury, aka the Thunderbolt. Yes, and it's the specifically it's the Mark III variant. The original, the the ones that we've been seeing up till now have been the Mark IIs, sometimes called Auroras. So I may use the term Aurora if in this thing because that's why I've been using it in my head. So don't be thrown if I say Aurora. 
yeah that i i've um as somebody who got who got curious last month and found the the core book for the uh babylon 5 a call the arms miniatures game mm. uh, i was flipping through that and i'm like oh aurora is okay that's a nice name for him uh, i wish they could use that honestly yeah. more um, but yes, I've invited Scott to the show <laughs> for for us to talk about planes because I needed somebody who wasn't going to just troll me like June. Uh, see, I have I have lots of thoughts, and unfortunately, if you have a if you have a, a cold reception for the for the Mark II for the originals, uh, you and I may have to throw hands down because that's the better of the two. I'm sorry to say. Oh, really? Yes. Because I found the Thunderbolt a lot more appealing. So the Thunderbolt looks beautiful and i love the fact that it's got that um that very blunt nose it looks like a world war ii fighter i mean they're obviously calling back to um to things like the spitfire and stuff and the name is almost certainly a direct reference to some to some planes that came before um yeah the p4 yep and also the uh, a10 warthog's official name is the thunderbolt as well um and like so somebody was somebody was making a a comment with that uh but Mm -hmm. If you are looking at these two designs from a hard sci-fi uh, perspective, which, mind you, in in the hard sci-fi world, starfighters don't make sense. But if they are going to have them, if you're going to have one, the Aurora is the one to have, the, the Mark II, because it gives up all pretense of being anything but a zero-G hard vacuum one-man fighting unit. It's yeah. got... The, the man at the very center of its center of gravity, which means if you do spin maneuvers, it's like an ice skater doing a triple lutz. You, you spin around around yourself instead of being at the end of a long lever arm, which throws you a bunch of G's and causes you to pass out when you want to flip your starfighter around. And uh, also like the, the the original and mind you, they are, they're obviously going to the second one because they are looking to sell more toys. I think I think that's that's pretty yeah. obvious. When I, when I Google when I Google the like when I did an image search yeah. for the Thunderbolt Star Fury, in the first I'd say like twenty five results. Yeah, there are three model kits yes. that are in the image image search, and, and I'm like, and I I com- that was- I completely understand that it's a beautiful design, but from a in universe like practicality sense, the the Mark mm. the Mark II is so cool. I love the fact that uh, in in according to Canon. When it blows up, the entire cockpit jettisons. They don't just send a guy out in an injection seat. They send the entire right. like roll cage out with all the windows and everything too. And, and it's ba- it, it feels it always feels so Earth to me. Yeah, that like a lot of the Earth ships are kind of hodgepodges. Yes, of of different sort of eras of design. Yes, and it's like okay, you took a roll cage, you slapped. A gun, yep. a fusion reactor, and four thrusters to it. Yeah. Let's go. Thrusters that go in all different directions so it could absolutely move in all kinds of interesting ways, which they don't typically do from when they're fighter scenes because the animators kind of can't handle it. But they do do that maneuver yeah. where they'll turn around and fire backwards and stuff. It's beautiful. It's, it's yeah. where – like. Somebody watched that and then said, oh, crap, that's what we need to do when when they then went on to make Battlestar Galactica. Like the, the yeah. like so many like some animators looked at that and said, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to look. And that, for that, the Mark II has no compromises. They just go straight for we, this is what we do. And the Thunder, the Thunderbolt, the, the Mark three looks beautiful and has according to like all the stats is better in every way. Uh, but I, I it just compromises it's it's also meant to be an atmospheric fighter which i think it just shouldn't do like you should do one or the other i i feel like that it that the thunderbolt is a design that was created by the right wing earth gov movement because they realized that oh hey we should have a, a fighter that's capable of bombing ground targets <laughs> in case our colonies rise up the, 
actually the the atmosphere capable thing sounds to me like some subcontractor contractor got into the design system and's like we well we we need a thing to do so this thing should be atmosphere capable <laughs> and a senate subcommittee said okay make it that and it compromised the rest of the design just so they could get that one thing in <laughs> i have an alternate theory and that's that they made it for x-wing nerds to have something <laughs> to lust after yeah i mean as I mean, somebody yeah. who thinks the t the t65 is the the pinnacle you know, yeah. I, I will say that the look of the Thunderbolt does appeal to me yeah. on that level. I, I, I will completely agree. The Thunderbolt is the better looking of the two. It's if if, you, okay. if one of them is the Porsche, then that's the Thunderbolt. And if one of them is I, the super fast, ugly vert, like the better thing that is uglier, that's the that's the Mark II. I feel like that the Thunderbolt like might be from like a design point. I'm gonna oh gosh. So like the Thunderbolt or, or the Aurora feels like a turn fighter. Yeah. Where the idea is to get in close and just out turn your other yeah. guy. It's the dogfighter. Except, yeah, it, it's a dogfighter. Whereas a Thunderbolt would be closer to what we perceive. Uh, if we want to use like World War, but like the like prop plane yeah. terminology, would be an energy fighter. Yeah, okay. Is it goes it goes really fast and has better range and bigger guns. Yeah, and more, and more hard so points, it, so it can launch missiles and bombs and things like that. It's yeah. a it's a much more of a multi role design. Yeah, well, and it has it has a w it has a weapon system officer yeah. for. And I think I think that that aligns well um, the role of the Star Furies within the kind of world building of space combat within B five, sure. which is that the um, yeah the Star Furies or comparable vessels are the ones doing the close quarters fighting yeah. and the ships are doing the like the the big ships or stations or what have mm-hmm. you are doing the long range slow fighting yeah and as a as an aside a quick call out uh good on them for using intercepting missiles and stuff like that in their in their setting which the is, interceptors are one of my yeah favorite, which like, is yeah. something that everybody else was doing energy shields at the time and uh b5 is like no we're gonna do it the, the the way it might actually work in fact that's real technology now <laughs> like that is something that we're doing for real since that came out oh yeah like we've got the, like there like there are some reasons that have the shield technology mm-hmm. but it's um, yeah, like the, 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 the interceptor is the human solution, which is exactly right. That fits the human yeah. character yeah. in this world. We get a gun to shoot. A, we get a gun to shoot guns. Yep. <laughs> and we and we've spent a fair amount of time comparing a lot of the base fights to the expanse. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know the PDCs interceptors are a thing on the expanse as well because B five and the expanse are shockingly close to each other in terms of technology. Yeah, actually they they they. They went along the same sort of thought process to get to where they're going. Yeah, for sure. That that Earth is at a, you know, comparable level of, you know, you got fusion tech, you do not have anti-grav, um, you've got shiny guns, um, mm-hmm. armor plating, that's it. Yep. I'm wondering if like it was they wanted like they, they wanted a new model, they yeah. wanted to sell cool new toys. I think also from a storytelling point. Um, there was, there's some reasons why you might want to have multiple kinds. I don't know how far ahead you are, but there, there's some reasons why you might want to have a couple different kinds of star furies coming up. Gosh, just from like doing the Google image search, there's like, there are more fan like stat sheets or 3d vector art Mm -hmm. of people making the Thunderbolts in other programs than there are of actual shots from the show. I believe it. Which, <laughs> like, looking like looking at this, I'm like, I feel like, God, I'm trying to remember the website. This was back in the late aughts, but it was like, 
something like the the Starfleet Design Bureau or something, where it was a website where people would make like okay. would like make like fan start like Federation. I remember that site. Yes, like 3D, this is ringing about. Yes. Things. And it's like half of this, half of this art is the using the exact same programs it is. It has the exact same look. And I, it's sort of kind of endearing to me. <laughs> yeah. Also, you could put some really sick nose art on one of the Thunderbolts. That's true. That, that is, is a pro for true. the Thunder, for the yeah, Thunderbolt. Yeah. And from a, from a production standpoint, I'm sure that uh, having somebody in, having a passenger seat to carry characters around is useful storytelling oh, wise as well. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> otherwise they have to send everybody out in their own ship. And apparently everybody can fly a Star Fury in this universe. I, don't, I think the only yeah. one I haven't seen so far is Franklin to get in one of these things. Nobody would trust <laughs> Franklin with a Star Fury. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm always shocked that Garibaldi can fly one of those things. Yeah, that one, that seems weird every time. I'm like, he's not even, a, I think he's like a warrant officer. He's not like. Yeah. 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 He's a, his official rank is chief yeah. warrant officer, which is. I like with Ivanova and like Sheridan and Sinclair, it makes sense because it's just like that. It's it's it aligns with the thinking of the time, which was that pilots got promoted. Yeah. This was a very weird thing that the Navy and the Air Force did for a long time Mm -hmm. was they would just promote pilots. Yeah. And Garibaldi maybe makes sense because in his official backstory, he apparently I believe he was a shuttle pilot for quite some time on Mars. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. The only thing I can remember about him was that he was a ground pounder at one point, I think. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah they, they mentioned the shuttle pilot, and um, I think the most recent one we we like it was mentioned in messages from Earth. Okay. So I can see I can see him being not particularly great at flying to Star Fury, but com- but like competent enough to like get behind the wheel. Yeah, but who would who would let him though? Yeah, no, it's it, well, that's what I don't understand. Who would give him? I mean, for that matter, why do you let any of this command staff out in a, in a single man fighter at all? Like. <laughs> Like, that should be against protocol to, like, let these people fly when they're much more useful, like, doing commanding back on the base. And then yeah, send well, the, especially the, in combat. Like, yeah. in, like, I get when they have, like, I gotta, I gotta fly to keep my certification up because oh, I yeah, get sure. paid an extra 10,000 credits a year if I am certified on a Star Fury. Like, I get that. <laughs> but yeah. then Ivanova's like, the men need me out there to inspire them. I'm like, dude, it's a clusterfuck. Nobody cares that, that you're out there. In yeah. a Star Fury. And if you haven't been flying with them this whole time, you're probably going to be a liability more than anything. Yeah. Especially especially when you're rubbernecking and nearly collide with one of the ships. Yeah. Well, and plus, there's no way that they are not more afraid of Ivanova than the fighting out there. They don't need two fronts to fight a war on, okay? I get that it's a storytelling thing so that yeah. they can have a, a, a named character crash and have to be rescued, which is always what happens. Yeah. It's it's not like the the shuttles where uh, Sinclair and Garibaldi go off to B four and we get the fasten then zip conversation. <laughs> I mean that's good. At least. Yeah. Um, on that terrible note, let's switch to our um, second guest bit that we have planned for the evening. Even more terrible note. Which, yeah, the, uh, I'm just gonna put like a blanket content warning oh, yeah. for just like weird biology grossness yeah. i have no idea where this is going to go uh, the, i will give you something <laughs> more specific is i'm gonna i'm gonna have some real facts about animals that you may not want to know at the at the end of this conversation that i'm gonna tell you <laughs> if you listen pat uh if you listen past this point dear listeners godspeed <laughs> otherwise we'll see you next week for interludes and examinations all right let's talk about some alien junk <laughs> nice <laughs> Uh, are we are we going to talk about exactly what sort of pipe Jakar is laying? I haven't thought at all about 
about uh, about Narn. No, I got prompted because every time they mention it, as I've been watching through, I've, I've tweeted, I know too much about Centauri Anatomy. <laughs> and then eventually Justin <laughs> called me out on it on Twitter. <laughs> I yeah I mean it's but I was like I'm like I either just want you to talk about Centauri junk or I just want you to I would like how would you remake the shadows those are like my two thoughts but like, okay I'm, I'm gonna save the shadows because um okay that that's a whole we don't have time I'm sorry we just don't have okay. uh, but I I've been thinking about god I hate to say this I've been thinking about Centauri anatomy now all day and um the, the unfortunate I am thing, so proud right now. Yeah. Uh, the unfortunate <laughs> to, to, thing... To inflict the thought of Centauri dick on someone for an entire day is a real peak achievement. I'm feeling pretty good about. Uh, yeah. And you see, I, we have six. <laughs> uh, the unfortunate thing is that there are some par- real parallels in, like, in er- Terran, you know, uh, terrestrial anatomy from our real world, which I can draw from so we can draw some possible conclusions from. So, uh, <laughs> the, the, I was going to say, oh, so we could draw some examples and I'm like, no, wait, this is an audio. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Well, thankfully we will not have any visuals to go along with this. Um, so there are, uh, the, the first thing is why six, right? Like we got more, there are some real animals that have, um, either multiple, uh, penetrative organs or like bifurcated ones. Like, um, echidnas very famously have a four headed penis. Um, and they're the females of the species have, uh, it's actually an entire genus that has this, um, have a branching reproductive system. So, um, they have, there's four heads on one, on the penis and there's two tracks within the vagina. So, um, and they've got two, uh, wombs. So they will actually get pregnant twice at the same time with, with multiple litters. Um, so that's something you could draw from. I don't know why you'd want Dear to. Dear God. But, uh, there are also some reptile spe- uh, species with diphalism, uh, which is, would be two penises. Um, notably, some versions of uh, some species of snake are like this. Uh, but the one that I think is the most interesting rabbit hole to go down to, uh, go, down, down <laughs> through, hole. are um, <laughs> are the cephalopods. Specifically, I'm thinking about octopuses or octopi. Um, especially, or, especially since we do know that uh, we have seen Centauri male anatomy, yes, and it's very um, it is a tentacle. Yes, um, that can reach across a table. Yes, so um, sp- I'm going to talk specifically about octopi here. So, um, for a large number of or all octopuses, uh, octopi um, use produce what are called spermatophores in a, a gonad within their body. And then they transfer that into the female using one of their tentacles, one of their arms, and uh, using a specific one that has a little uh, uh, channel built in essentially for this. Uh, so they that is absolutely the kind of mechanism that it sounds like they're sort of pointing towards here is <laughs> something along those lines, which would explain why he has four or not four. He has six, because then any one of those could be pulling the spermatophores or whatever Centauri equivalent uh, would be produced and be... Uh, giving those over to the female. Um, that would also imply the possibility of, um, there's a there's a particular genus of octop- uh, octopi where they've got incredibly high uh, sexual dimorphism by size. I cannot remember the name of the, of the, of the group though, um, and where the, the females are much, much larger than the males. And they tend to snack on the males after mating is over. Like they'll mate with them and then they eat them. So the, the males have come up with a very fan, um, interesting, uh, uh, tactic to deal with this, which is that they fill up their spermatophore uh, arm, they tear it off, they hand it to the female, and then they book it as far fast as possible <laughs> in the opposite direction. And they let her just deal with whatever she's going to do. That is super 
you can totally imagine Veer doing that. <laughs> yes, that is, a, that is very much a Veer move. Here you go, I'm sorry. So at some point in the past, you could imagine that uh, whatever predece- ancestral predecessor to the um, uh, Centauri were decapedal, I guess, at this point. They would have had four arms plus six tentacles or some number thereof. Uh, and then I guess just like the same sort of sexual selection that produces peacock feathers. You end up with the females selecting for the males that either have more or larger or more stretchy or ambidextrous, I guess, um, uh, tentacles. And uh, you end up in the situation where we end, where we find ourselves in the actual series where you've got uh, Londo <laughs> who can apparently go like stretches out several feet to get around to 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 grab some cards off of a table. Um, and meanwhile, because the males are not selecting for the same thing, the females lose their tentacles and end up only with the receptacles, uh, which apparently are on their back. I think we even might see it at one point um, without knowing what they this are. This is news to me. Yeah. <laughs> I do statue. not remember this at all. This is from uh, the, this is from the, the the fandom wiki. So the, the, the statue shows the, the tentacles starting like at the yeah. sort of the side or the back of the ribs yeah. and coming out. And then yes. uh, there's a shot of Londo when he's in med bay once and they like wrap around his torso yeah. yeah he's got him kind of cupped up around his chest um and at one point he even says like i think he says something like grab this and he actually like touches his chest right where the where he would be holding those uh, as a subtle reference that happens in like episode two or something too it's like really early yeah. they knew what they're doing with this oh jesus Oh, I forgot to mention, yeah, oh, uh, prehensile uh, penises are also a thing in the mammalian world, too. Uh, notably, dolphins uh, apparently will sometimes carry things uh, with their prehensile dicks. So that's an option. I'm, not, I'm saying it's not as far out there as one would imagine. I think that this was all this would all be news to JMS, that he wasn't thinking along these lines. But uh, it's not as weird as we I think. But, but everything I've learned about biology, especially when it comes to like aliens in a sci-fi show, is that what, if you try to go weird, it's that biology probably all probably is like 90% of the way there. Yes. But what gives it the whip crack fully? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, the most impressive, like the best fully in this in this show. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I always find Jakar fascinating because... Jakar is Jakar gets with lots of people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so we see him um, having a fun time with human females. Yes. He's... And also with at least one Centauri female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jakar is a alien fucker for sure. Yeah. And probably with Narn females as well. But I mean, we, I don't think we ever see that though. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting to know. We have never seen him with a Narn female, just humans and one Centauri. But think about what one name Narn. Think about what kind of pipe he has to to be swinging that he can manage with. I mean, the the true but uncouth way to say it is that you know, like hands are enough, right? Like you don't really need to. Like, yeah, the, no, fair the, enough. The, the yeah. tab A into slot B thing is only extra, right? Like, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I actually do. Okay. So this this whole uh, genitalia thing. Um, I do have one slightly spoil slightly a, a spoilery explanation, which might explain why a uh, decapod like the Centauri probably previously were were turned into bipedal. But it is actual. It is an actual spoiler. All right, Justin. So I can't believe this is what <laughs> this is where you got to pull your headphones off. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Activate gold channel one. Okay, so um, 
it's very obvious to me that over the course of this series that the Vorlons are not just manipulating people to or manipulating species to have uh, telepathy, as is seen in later seasons. But also that it would be a perfect explanation for why every creature that we see, every every not every, but most of the sentient creatures we see are bipedal man-shaped, you know, creatures is mm. because the Vorlons, who are one of the very early races, that's the form that they preferred and were therefore selectively nudging along and uplifting other species that fit that mold and were therefore yeah. carrying them along. And that is, it's one of those things where it, it's definitely a outside of universe. The explanation is because it's cheaper to make, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to put some people in makeup, but it's a, it's a reasonable way to explain. We could have had Muppets, though, Scott. We could have we, had Muppets. Very briefly, we I love I miss the Mantis guy. In first season, there's the Mantis alien they keep going back to, and he's just a yeah. big Mantis puppet. And I loved him so much, and then he just disappeared when they moved on, and I'm so sad. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's my one spoilery thing. And so it, it means that the... Um, the, uh, the 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 old decapod could have turned in could have been made into a bipedal man shaped creature by influence of the of the uh, ancient ones. So you're good to go. And this is what you, this is what happens when you ask me biology questions about aliens is that I come up with stuff that's like not only plausible but has universe <laughs> implications later on. <laughs> I mean, this is this is why we had you on. <laughs> I mean, the plane shit, sure, but I. <laughs> No, I think it's more like the Vorlons are making every... The Vorlons made sure that everybody else... Or so impressed with their own genitalia, they're making sure yeah. everybody else evolves to look something like them. Everybody's got a dick because the Vorlons were so impressed with their own. Or, That's or my possibly, yeah. <laughs> Or possibly when you look at a Vorlon, you just see whatever particular genitalia you'd like to see. You know, whatever you think is most... <laughs> the highest form of genitalia. Oh... <laughs> Oh. <laughs> limited only by your imagination see we should have, we should have had you on for the the one um where we have the Ivanova sex dance <laughs> oh, that was, oh yeah I think I, that was before we were taking that because <laughs> we still hadn't released an episode yet. <laughs> oh. I don't know do we want to toss any other weird alien biology things out there I mean I I can't imagine we can top this much dick talk. I feel like we are <laughs> obligated to wrap it up with dicks. Yeah. <laughs> if we were gonna if we were gonna do any if we we're gonna do any of that, it had to be before the dicks. You can't follow dicks up with Yeah. <laughs> can't go backwards. I, well so I have I, I have a question. Oh. Why do so many of the aliens have boobs, Scott? Why do they have boobs? Why why are if if Centauri are like a cephalopod sort of thing, okay. why do they have tits? Okay. I, because repto mammals. <laughs> I actually no. I have a I have a reasonable explanation for that, which is that female tits are um, there to imitate the presence of an ass. Um, that they the 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 swelling. This is a theory that I don't know how much uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much uh, water it holds. But lots of people say that because when we stopped mating uh, back to front, we and started mating front to front, that people missed looking at at butts. The men were still wanted to look at a butt, and so you get this sort of ass like swelling on the front. In the in the shape of tits, and then maybe that crosses species, and everybody really just likes looking at butts, and so you get a second butt in the front in the form of tits. <laughs> wow! <laughs> front butts. Thank you for that, um, uh, Zathras. I really want to cut it right there. Just cut it at front butts and take us right <laughs> into the exit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we warned people. 
We gave him as much of a warning as possible. Uh, feeling that, Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Scott Paladin. Frankly, if you just Google Scott Paladin, I pretty much own the search results. Uh, so I got a website and all that stuff. You can find it. Just just look me up. I'm good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this this went exactly where I thought it would, so that's good. Um, listeners, um, you can go find Scott Paladin on the internet, and you can join us next time uh, for interludes and examinations. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license. Front butts.